0: Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. Hi, folks. This episode was recorded in a busy co-working space where some background noise crept in. I felt the conversation worth sharing despite some of the external sounds and hope you forgive the quality on this one. Thanks so much. What's up, friends? It is Ethan Lipsitz back at you again with Love Extremist Radio currently in Brooklyn, New York with my old friend Jesse Israel. Jesse is a community leader and meditation teacher who founded The Big Quiet, a series of mass meditations that occur in extraordinary places. Think Madison Square Garden, or World Trade Center, or LA Library in downtown Hover. Uh He used to run a record label, most notable for driving the explosion of MGMT in the mid-aughts. That was the jam for a while, and still, still in many cases it is. And Jesse and I have supported each other as friends and mentors over the years, and I'm really excited to have a conversation with him about love. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you so much, brother. It's such a treat and honor to be here. Such a treat to see you in this context. You know, we have been kind of like keeping tabs on each other and checking in with each other for a few years now, and had the great opportunity to travel to some interesting places. And, and learn about each other kind of in little bites and it's mm-hmm. nice to have those friendships where you kind of check back in and it's like Oh, man, I've learned this this and this and realize we're kind of on similar pathways throughout but Yeah,
1: it's so true. And, and I'm stoked to document some of that, that path right now.
0: Dope. Awesome um, so Love extremism as I just explained to you before we went on air is really rooted in a lot of different principles that tie love and activism together Mm. so so often when we talk about love it feels like this amorphous thing or romantic right and we really associate it with our relationships and i don't think that's wrong i think that's a beautiful part of love i also think that there's a lot more room for us to be concrete in how we define it and how we act from a place of love Mm. in our regular lives so i know you've got a lot to say on that subject but like i'd love to just dig in at the the core question what is your definition of love
1: I mean, for for me, this is relatively amorphous, but it's it's the essence of what connects us as humans. Okay. You know, for me, it's like a it's a it's like a life force that um, is like a it's the life force of our belonging of our humanity. Hmm. It's uh it's it's the 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 element that allows us to, I think, feel our truth, our deeper being, and understand that we are interconnected to one another.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's, um, and it's something that I believe that we're all able to tap into, mm-hmm. to um, feel less alone, mm-hmm. to feel more supported and seen, mm-hmm. and um, to find common ground. Yeah. I think the challenge is how we look at it and talk about it outside of just romantic partnership right? and also how to access it.
0: It's interesting because the way you speak on it makes me think of the book The Secret Life of Trees. Are you familiar? No, I haven't heard it. Okay, so basically the premise of this book is that all trees are communicating through their root systems. Mm -hmm. Like every tree on the planet is connected and they all speak to each other. And so I think about that metaphor of root systems and maybe it's almost like this invisible energetic force field that connects us all. Yeah, I love it. I think, that,
1: I think that's a great reference. Yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it. I also feel that maybe with the analogy with the trees, the trees maybe inherently are all able to be connected to that and have connection to that and can feel it in any moment. Right. I think with humans, we all have access to this connective life force mm. that we call love, right. but it's very easy to disconnect from it, mm-hmm. to not understand how we connect with it. Or to think that it's something that we don't have access to or that is not for us. So I believe that it's there for all of us right. and that it does connect all of us, but how we actually embrace it, click into it, bring it into our lives, practice it, is uh, maybe an art form that has become lost over the years. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we've lost it? I think there's I think there's so many elements to, to, to why we've lost that deeper connection. Um, to love and to interconnectedness. Right. I mean, on, on broader terms, I think what we're talking about here, what I'm talking about here, is a belief that we all belong to each other as humans. Yeah. That we are interconnected to each other as right. a species. Right. And that as humans, we're designed right. to be there for each other, to contribute to each other, to collaborate with one another. Right. And that we rely on each other, that we need each other to survive which is built into how we've existed for so many years and tribes mm-hmm. and i think that as we've moved away from mm-hmm. um a living format mm-hmm. essentially tribal living right where we go from where we went from always being with each other always supporting each other needing to contribute to the greater good to survive mm-hmm. to how we live today which can be if you live in a modern city or a suburb a ra- relatively isolated experience very individualized. yeah very indi- individualized experience that um Uh, it becomes very easy to forget this deeper essence, this deeper purpose of contributing to the greater good, contributing to groups. And I think that the way that we live our lives um, and how isolated we can be through our use of social media, through the the very limited access to community spaces where we can be in connection and support of one another, and um, the way that we are commonly living now, which is essentially in a place like New York City, mm-hmm. you can go a day, a month, maybe a lifetime, mainly being surrounded by people, but being totally alone. Wow, just being surrounded by tons of people that are essentially all strangers right so I think that there, that there's something that 's become lost as we 've become more socialized socially isolated as creatures mm-hmm. and part of what I feel has gotten lost is this connection to love mm-hmm. is this understanding that love connects all of us mm-hmm. is this understanding that love is something that that we all have in common right regardless of our belief system, our background, where we're from, what we look like.
0: It's interesting. So one thing that comes up for me, and I know you can probably relate to this, is this idea of Jewish geography. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you meet someone who really identifies as Jewish, we're both Jewish men, And there's this kind of like, oh, like, you know, my uncle Ruben, you know, he makes the best pastrami in San Francisco, whatever, you know, and like, there's this kind of tribalism that occurs, and sometimes it's religious, and sometimes it's more about like, maybe it's the meditation community or the yoga community, right? And I think about how tribalism can often lead to conflict, right? Because it becomes reasons for us to not identify with each other Mm -hmm. as the same, right? To find kind of differences amongst groups. But there also seems to be some sort of value in that, some sort of reason for that and the conflicts that come up. Mm. Do you feel like in your life, the conflicts that you've experienced or that you've witnessed have hold inherent value and that there's still kind of that energy of connectedness and love that, that plays out through that?
1: Well, when I think of individual conflict, when I think of the things that have been challenging for me in my own life, mm-hmm. um, I'd say that. Any great challenge that I've been through, I've been able to look back on once I've moved through the challenge mm-hmm. and seen that it's in some way, one way or another not only been an incredible learning, mm-hmm. but has been an opportunity to more deeply connect with other people right. and deepen connection with myself. Right. I find that the challenges that I go through as an individual are... Uh, incredibly meaningful opportunities when I express them mm. to feel a sense of belonging to other people because other people often can relate to the challenges that I go through.
0: Yes. Thank yeah. you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I, th- I think that that, I think that there's so much power in conflict or what I, more specifically, I'm talking about personal conflict right? or conflict in relationship to one other person, right? Mm-hmm. R- uh, romantic challenges or mental health challenges or work challenges or the way that we compare ourselves to our peers or the body images, uh, body image issues that we may have or, you know, the things that a lot of us go through uh, that that not many of us communicate about but once we start to express those Mm. and then other people realize that in the courage of someone expressing their challenges, they too can express them and then you realize that you have a connection through your shared challenge. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most meaningful ways to have a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. or to tap into that feeling of shared love Mm -hmm. and that can transcend and kind of permeate through all sorts of differences among strangers. Mm -hmm. There's real beauty in that. Mm -hmm. And I've seen how this can work with all sorts of different people if we're given permission And if people are modeling and leading in a way that makes it okay to do this. Mm -hmm. As it relates to group conflict, I am still very much in process of making sense of what the benefits are to group conflict. Uh, Because I I do see that there's so much divisiveness and defensiveness in how we operate as a society today. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, it looks like love lost when that's happening. And I've heard some really interesting... Uh, stuff I got to spend a little bit of time with Brene Brown in a smaller group when I was part of um, a program, a leadership program at Harvard Divinity School. and She had shared some research that she had done on uh, movements, communities, groups. And what she shared with us was that the groups... Good? What she shared with us was that the groups that uh, were working towards change, mm-hmm. that were powered by... Um, a sense of fear um, or hate yeah. uh, across the board and all the research that she had done led to um, fallout or violence wow. and that there wasn't an example of sustainable lasting change mm. from that group but that the groups or movements that were fueled by love empathy and compassion mm. Although perhaps sometimes more challenging to embody those the whole way through, created sustainable change, lasting change, right? And they were able to um, build their followings and continue to uh, grow them and bring them to life and, and effectively create the change that they wanted to see. So I don't, I don't have much more specifics around the research, uh, but what she shared, regardless of how much, how much is real in that or not, I don't know. But I just thought that there was a lot of, there's something in that that really resonated with me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is that it's really, I'm going to, I'm going to say this as a, uh, you know, a white man of privilege. And I, I just, I think that I do have my own challenges and suffering, but there is a, there's a, a whole, uh, an entire body of lived experience that I can't speak to. Sure. Um, so through my own experience, um, what, I can, what I've witnessed and been able to see is that I understand how anger and, um, and having challenging experiences can lead towards people wanting to engage and build groups and act Absolutely. through anger, um, through violence or through hatred. Mm-hmm. I can understand why, why people may operate in that way. Um, I also am of the belief system that if there are ways and means to access empathy and some form of baseline love, that there's a greater opportunity for change, for systemic change. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, I say that with a very limited perspective because there's a lot of elements that touch on Mm -hmm. uh, this stuff that I can't speak to because I don't have lived experience around
0: it. I think I really appreciate you saying that. And you just said a lot. So I just want (laughs) to kind of go back and just for everyone listening, one thing that early on in in this last um, uh, kind of piece of Jesse's words, he said, vulnerability becomes an access point. Shared vulnerability becomes a personal access point for love and connection. And I really agree with that. So when we share our challenges personally with other people, they see that vulnerability and often want to match you and can come to where you're at. Um, and and then getting into the group dynamics, things become a little bit more gray. And it's hard for both of us as white men of privilege to, to speak for groups that may have been disempowered and not coming from a place of privilege for hundreds if not thousands of years. And um, it's very understandable that emotions of anger or fear or doubt or or frustration are fuel for movements, and you see that a lot. Um, I think there's also um, certain expressions, you know, uh, kill them with kindness, or kind of like changing minds through compassion, right? And, and how that, that often feels maybe like a more impactful approach. You think of a lot about restorative justice and the power of people who maybe face a killer who murdered someone in their family, and can show up with love and see them as another human and forgive them. And while that's maybe one of the most challenging things in the world to possibly do, and I've never done anything like that at that level, I can imagine that the love that comes through that forgiveness is so powerful. And I've heard stories and, and, and listened to podcasts and, and seen reports on this really changing the needle for people who are really coming from a place of anger and breaking them down almost so that they can build up into a place of love. Um but one thing that comes to mind when you were talking about groups and the idea what Brene Brown was speaking about around kind of um fighting for something or believing in something, not necessarily fighting, but really pushing for a change rather than against change or against something. Um makes me think about negativity bias. And I know this is kind of going to tie in nicely to a lot of things that you do you do in meditation but i often think about this negativity bias we have as individuals and as groups so for example um a lot of times when we set up organizations or or companies and we have a cause it's fighting against something we want to end hunger we want to end homelessness and there's this kind of like negative orientation so we have a, a collective enemy And we can unify groups around that enemy and fight against it and identify it. Similarly so in our day-to-day, if we live a day that's 99% amazing and 1% bad, that 1% sticks with us and comes back to the dinner table that we tell our partner at the end of the day or our family, right? And it gnaws in our brain when we're going to sleep. And so, I don't know, I'm just curious what you think about kind of the negativity bias and its power on our culture to identify how we act.
1: Mm. I love that, I actually haven't heard that term before. I, I'm, you know, I, although I, my work is not within film, I went to film school mm-hmm. and found it to be incredibly valuable for all the things that I do now because I learned about the power of storytelling. Yeah. And I think that what works well within the negativity bias is that it's a powerful means to tell a story and to move a group.
2: Mm.
1: When we focus on this is what the problem is and as a result, this is the solution that we're going to bring to that problem. Mm-hmm. It's a really effective way to move people, to inspire people, to charge people up. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of times negativity bias is a means of communicating a purpose. Mm-hmm. It's a means of communicating um, a problem mm-hmm. so then you can get clear about the solution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the great challenge, the opportunity and the great challenge is to make clear what the problem is. Mm-hmm. Um, and make clear what the solution is, but to reframe it from starting with the negative and rallying around the negative and reframing it into this is what the world looks like mm-hmm. when we've addressed the problem. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, moving towards
1: the possi- like the future that we want. So instead, this is just like an on the spot. So you know, instead of like we're here to you know fight uh, poverty. Right. Or we're here to fight, you know, um, homelessness and hunger, yeah. but instead to say, we're here to create a world where all people have access to X, Y, and Z, mm-hmm. right? We, we, can, we can start to speak to some of the same challenge points, but one is framed through the opportunity lens, or maybe it's a positive bias. The other is, is framed through the negative lens or the problem lens, right? Mm-hmm. So, but it's, it's a, it's, it's a, there's an art form to how we reframe in this way, Mm -hmm. because we want to make sure that we're still getting across our causes. But I really do find that if we communicate what the world looks like, what the world that we want to create looks like, instead of saying, this is the problem, this is how we're going to address it, we're more likely to empower people into our movement. Uh
0: Uh, it's tough to do. I think that that's actually, this is a very kind of like West Coast word I might say, but like to me that's alchemy. It's like, tr- like language can be a tool for alchemy and it's almost like when I started to release the use of but in my language mm-hmm. and I shifted all my butts to ands, mm-hmm. it be I I lost a lot of the binary thinking, right? This is cool, but this part sucks. It's actually like, this is cool, and this part's not so dope. (laughs) But those two things can coexist. And I think similarly so, in reframing the language of a challenge into a vision of the future, you're actually alchemizing that into a positive, loving vision and a a destination to work towards. I'd love to move from this macro concept into our bodies and our minds. Mm -hmm. So in the practice of meditation, we have thoughts sometimes negative, sometimes positive, but in general, just tons of thoughts racing through our brain constantly. How do you see this concept of reframing the body and the mind to be in practice and meditation um, applying? Because I think thoughts generally are considered to be distractions from a good meditation practice. Mm. Um, Well, there's a couple things that I pull from that question. The first is...
1: I think that there's an opportunity for us to... This this example that we did of, of reframing the negative bias to uh, positive bias, yeah. I think that there that, that can be applied to how we sometimes create stories for ourselves mm. and sometimes give into certain thoughts mm-hmm. internally. Yeah, And that I'm not necessarily a big believer in like frame everything in the positive and positive thinking, positive thinking, positive right. thinking. But I do really believe that... Um, uh, essentially anything that I start that I, uh, that I allow myself to begin to suffer about mm-hmm. through perseverating thinking deep overthinking some might say yeah. going to that place of storytelling of fear of defensiveness the things that for so many of us is the natural first step and like the human experience of thinking is we tend to right. so many of us tend to go to a place of fear defensiveness negativity that there is an opportunity always to pause and to accept what we're feeling, allow ourselves to feel the discomfort, and accept that we have uh, responsibility and power to also apply love and wisdom to anything that we're allowing to suffer, allowing ourselves to suffer about. Mm. And to it's not about pushing the thought out of the brain. It's not about ignoring. It, it's actually about really feeling into the discomfort of a thought, mm. and then choosing to apply love to it, and choosing to express ourselves through love which I refer to as wisdom yeah Um, and that this this practice when practiced regularly can almost always bring us back to a place of love very tough yeah but I believe that it's possible in the same way that we can reframe the challenges uh, the the negative bias that we were just talking about right that's that's one thing that I'm really interested in actually one of my teachers Johnny Pollard wrote a book called the golden sweet sequence that's specifically designed Uh, um, support us when we're starting to suffer about something to go through an internal process that allows us to um, apply love and wisdom to to, to that moment and to to grow through it in a really beautiful way. And I really recommend the book for people that are interested in learning more about that. In regards to to thoughts and meditation, the style of meditation that I practice and teach we welcome thoughts. you know, I, I teach I teach meditation mm. where a mantra is used okay. it comes from a Hindu lineage right. it's similar to TM or Vedic meditation mm-hmm. we sit comfortably with our eyes closed and the practice is about surrendering to our thoughts and using a mantra staying with um, uh, a mantra which is a, essentially a Sanskrit word that doesn't necessarily have a meaning to us but has, holds a vibrational essence mm. that allows the mind and the body to settle and that in this style of meditation that I teach and practice, thinking and the process of thinking during meditation is a means of unstressing and releasing out of the body. Huh. So uh, so yeah. So my, my relationship to thinking when it comes to meditation may, may look differently than other styles of meditation or different uh, approaches that people have. So I allow thoughts to come and go when I meditate and, and really just stay with my mantra gently. Mm-hmm. And it allows me to purify and release thoughts and unstress thoughts and have them come up and out. Yeah, sometimes I can be really uncomfortable. I'm sure.
0: That's that's awesome. How have you experienced meditation um, as a tool for loving? It's a very general question, but I mean, I have some thoughts of answers, mm-hmm. but I'd love to hear from you. Like, you've been leading meditations for what? Ten years? I mean, how how long have you been? No, doing? it's been almost five years. Five years. Okay. And what you've learned from hosting large groups of people gathering together to be quiet and to sit what you know what where is the love in that like where are you finding it most prevalent so i think that there are there are two pieces to this part
1: one is how meditation is a tool for accessing love for me personally as an individual yeah with my personal practice and then i think there's how it applies to accessing love in group setting Mm. for me personally Mm -hmm. um You know The reason why I got into meditation, I used to run a record label, like you mentioned, and was very focused on the entertainment space. And I was experiencing pretty debilitating anxiety and having panic attacks. And it was this very isolating process. I didn't really talk about it, didn't know about other people going through it. There wasn't much conversation about it. Mm -hmm. And I found meditation initially as a means to cope with my toxic stress and anxiety. Got it. And the more that, I, the more that I, I was able to embrace a regular practice and have a daily practice, the more my relationships started to shift with toxic stress and anxiety. Those things started to happen in a different way in my life. Things that would once stress me out wouldn't stress me out as much, or things that I would suffer in emotionally, I would still feel the emotion of, but I wouldn't sit and suffer in it as much. So I started to ex- experience less of the gunk, mm. less of the, the toxic stress and anxiety that can so often block us right. from our truth, from who we really are, from that deeper essence, for me, what I found was that as, as I've continued to bring practices into my life, like meditation is probably the most important one yeah. that helped me clear through and work through my toxic stress and anxiety. I have a clear channel yeah. from my gut to my heart, to my head yes. and that clearer channel, um, It becomes, and with my practice, my meditation practice, I'm able to connect more regularly with my state of being, Mm -hmm. the essence of just who I am without my thoughts, without my stories, without my fears, just me with infinite potential and power, me at my core. Mm -hmm. And that the more that I have access to that, and the more that I'm, I'm practicing and cultivating that essence, that connection to being... The more i'm able to tap clearly into love and bring love into my body and into my present state not just in my eyes closed i'm feeling blissful and meditating not just that but into my eyes open state of communication work relationships friendship having fun all those things so the simple way of saying this is i find that meditation helps reduce some of the things that block us from our deeper essences of ourselves mm-hmm. and that when we have access to that deeper essence of ourselves to being we're able to bring more love into whatever it is that we do
0: Wow I, I love that so often when I ask people to talk speak on self-love meditation comes into the mix and the sense of being able to love oneself and I think what you just spoke to was very much a, a sense of becoming conscious of what's blocking you yeah. from being in your body from being in your loving state And using meditation as a tool set to access that. And I think one other piece that I just want to highlight for everyone is embodiment. You spoke about getting into your heart and your gut and your your head and kind of connecting those things. I think on very practical terms, if we just think about being in our bodies... So often, we don't even breathe past our necks, right? But if you were just to breathe all the way into your pelvis, which you can totally do, you can actually start to fill your entire body and take up the space that you inhabit in the earth, in the world, right? You deserve this space and you can breathe into it. And similarly so, um, through meditation, you can get into places where you're giving your entire presence to your full body. And um, I just think it's important to recognize how we all have different methods of embodiment. For some, it's yoga. For some, it's running. For some, it's biking. You know, different ways of doing it. But in that, it's really important to um, recognize that we're just reconnecting to ourselves, really. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I love that. I think that's beautifully said. It's just it's uh, allowing
0: ourselves to experience ourselves more fully. Mm-hmm. So you speak a bit about the blocks to love and meditation being a toolkit or almost like a key that can help kind of like open the door to be a little bit more loving of oneself and then reflecting that out. When you're loving of yourself the old cliche, you're able to kind of call love in and share it and spread it around the world and I think that's true as cliche as it sounds. That's been my experience as well. Mm, Um, There's also a lot of other numbing agents. You live in one of the most intense cities in the world. Like the amount of stimulus hitting you on a daily basis is higher than a lot of people. Obviously, there's plenty of other places where things are crazy and hectic and there's traffic and there's subways and there's people everywhere. But do you feel like um, meditation uh, is an anecdote to all of that? Or are there other things that you practice in your life that you would say are kind of like helping enforce your meditative practice to keep you in a loving state?
1: Meditation is a really powerful tool for this, but it is it is by no means an end all be all, right? And it is by no means a silver bullet. Yeah, it's helped me tremendously with things that have blocked me, or with things that have um, led to elements of suffering in my life, like some of the mental health challenges we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it has not cured all these things. Mm-hmm. And so much of my existence today, even as someone who teaches meditation and leads meditations with thousands of people and really dedicated so much of my work to meditation, I still experience um, a lot of the challenges that meditation is designed to help. I still experience anxiety sometimes. I still experience depression Mm -hmm. and toxic stress, and it's gotten a lot better than it has. Mm -hmm. It's made me a lot more aware of what I can change in my life. Mm -hmm. And having a tool that regulates and resets my nervous system has been critical Mm -hmm. But it is not enough, especially, I think, in the world we live in mm-hmm. and in the city that I live in, mm-hmm. it is, uh, it's not enough to uh, keep me connected to love mm-hmm. um, or to even just to, to allow me to yeah, feel yeah. healthy and sane. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. the other things that are really important to me are, um, well, see, I'll start with the individual practices. For me, I, uh, I've had to redefine my relationship. With technology. Yeah. And I've had to, you know, create new terms for how I engage with technology. Mm -hmm. One of the ones that's been really helpful for me has been um, turning off all my notifications. Yeah. You know, I don't get notifications for anything, not even text messages. That's great. And it's allowed me to really have my phone on my terms. Mm -hmm. Doing things like checking emails in batches instead of checking it every second. Yeah. Cutting off work when I leave at the end of the day. So I'm not checking emails all night. Um, you know sleeping with my phone in my living room instead of my bedroom and using an analog alarm clock love that going into airplane mode when I go to sleep um, having my downtime app shut off all my apps around 10pm so nice. I'm really mindful of what I'm using you know limiting my screen time before I go to sleep like all these tech, these tech pieces yeah um have have helped create more space between me and my phone, which means more space between me and the to do list mm. that everyone has access to through email and text, mm-hmm. or through the um, uh, the emotional roller coaster that everyone has access to through social media totally. and feeds and comments and posts. Yeah, and having that space and having that control and sort of rebuilding some of the power that I play as it relates to technology has been really helpful because it's created more of a... Uh, I would say more of a force field yeah. between me and my ability to stay with love, to remember love, mm. and these other elements that can oftentimes uh, bring us to a place of forgetting love. Mm. By the way, this is, what, this is the listed language I think really makes sense for love, mm. is remembering and forgetting. That's it's interesting. interesting. Um, but anyways, and there are other practices I could speak to too, but uh, you know, individually... Meditation, technology, finding time in nature is really important to me. Absolutely. And then there are the 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 social practices that are really important for me. Yeah. Being in community. Yeah. And for me, that looks like um, being with groups that share a common goal or purpose. If that's my bike club, the Cyclones, and we're just you know going on big rides to explore and meet new people and go on adventures. If that's the big quiet, where thousands of people will come together to meditate, and, you know, meet new people and share a meaningful experience. If that's a cheeseburger club, I used to, you know, that's be the commissioner of the cheeseburger club. <laughs> um, if it's a religious group, if it's a men's circle or a women's circle or what, you know, any, any type of circle. Um, but, uh, groups that gather around a shared purpose, where there's some element of contributing, of bringing something to the table. I think that it, it, having access to groups like these reminds us of our humanity. Yeah. I think it, it really helps us feel into what it means to be human, to be in group, to cooperate. Being cooperative in group actually releases oxytocin and it feels good just to contribute to, and to cooperate with others. And I find that being in, in community in some capacity is a really powerful tool to stay with love and to connect with and, and return to remembering love. Mm-hmm. Because I I believe that it's through our shared experience with other people that we can kind of hold up mirrors and reflect um, to one another, uh, you know, our essence. I think Mm -hmm. that shows up really beautifully in community. Yeah, absolutely. So those are just, you know, a couple things to rattle off that I find can be really helpful.
0: I I think of it as almost co-creation, you know, like we co-create experiences or or co-create a moment together and, and that kind of interplay, like you said, the cooperation yeah. amongst other humans can really bring, bring our hearts forward and, and allow us to lead from a place of our body and, and not only being kind of in the head all the time.
1: Yeah, it's shifting from, from one way to two way, mm-hmm. to move from just taking from something yes. to, to actually contributing and, bringing, to your, and you know, bringing towards yourself and bringing towards others and
0: bringing towards others. That, that two-way experience is, is really completing. Conversation, yeah, we're doing it right now. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing that I think about when I think about Jesse Israel is I think about you at the the stage of a, a huge venue, leading a mass meditation in an incredible space. Whether it be um, the the space at, at World Trade Center, um, what's it called? The beautiful architectural hall. Um, where you led a mass meditation at oh, Oculus at Oculus, yeah. um, or MSG at Madison Square Garden or in L.A. You've 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 been kind of in the realm of these incredible moments of mass quiet, really, the big quiet and getting people together to meditate. When I've been in similar positions, often smaller spaces, leading outer nets and group singing experiences, there's a huge spirit of Love that flows through my body, and I feel kind of circling throughout the, the room. Do you have that same kind of experience? Do you find yourself in your body really like witnessing the collective love when you're leading these
1: gatherings? That's such a great question, man. Um, you know, the honest answer is that I often don't, and sometimes I do. Yeah. Um, through this process of stepping into this role, right, going from from a career standpoint, someone who signed bands, invested in technology startups, did a lot of work behind the scenes supporting talent, mm-hmm. to now being someone who is on stage in front of groups, facilitating experiences, leading, speaking, mm-hmm. teaching, it's been a really challenging shift for me. Yeah, uh, to go from that former realm of of kind of career role to this work that I do now, and. Um, part of my process of adjusting into this new life work has been that I've, uh, it sits on some of my greatest trigger points. Huh. It sits on some of my greatest fears. Right. And there have been many times where I've been in front of large groups uh, leading something that some would identify as spiritual or emotional or powerful. Uh-huh. Some people would say ne- um, use more negative words. <laughs> but that, um, that there's been many times where I've been in front of a group creating this experience And have been totally in my head or totally um, disconnected from the purpose of what I'm doing and why I'm doing it or um, unable to connect with how special it is Mm. that people have come together in mass to share in a moment like that, regardless of what they think of it or of me. There have been so many moments where I've, I've lost sight of that going through my own process. I've learned to celebrate and appreciate those moments yeah. As as training as you know as, as strengthening as I as I continue to do this work, I think it's important to have those experiences. So it happens less than it used to. Uh-huh. I find that I'm able to connect more with the power of love in these experiences and the purpose behind it, and what's special about it a lot more so than I used to be able to. Mm. But um, I've had experiences where that hasn't been the case. You've experienced that before, actually, when we did. Uh, a big quiet at the breakout conference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going through a really tough period in my, in my life and I was going through a a partnership challenge Mm -hmm. and I was, um, I I had gone off of a medication that I had been on for many years Mm -hmm. for antidepressant. That was a helpful tool for me that I went off of very abruptly. And I was in a very challenged space, Yeah, you know, uh, getting up on in front of 700 people to lead, to lead a moment. And minutes before, it was just so dark. Yeah. Like near panic attack, just like it just in such a challenged place. Wow. And feeling pretty isolated too. And what was so special about that moment was once I got on stage and we started to move through the experience of having this shared meditation, seeing people drop in and the different sound practitioners contributing and everyone contributing through shared quiet. That experience shifted and shifted my challenges mm-hmm. and brought me to a place of love. Mm-hmm. So, even as the facilitator or guide or leader of this experience, I went into it feeling very low. And through the shared experience that we created together, I was able to fully connect back to a place of remembering.
2: Mm-hmm. And for
1: the next several days, I was fully connected back into this is who I am, this is why I do this work. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's important for me to remind myself that that may be the process that I'm, that I'm going to have and that it's okay. Mm-hmm. What I would never want to do is, is to get in front of a group and put people in a position that would make them unsafe right. or, or put myself in a position where I'm leading something that could potentially you know, harm a group or not deliver on what we're, what we're saying we're here to deliver on. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I am having a challenging time and can still show up, And together we can
0: move through something that's healing for all of us. I mean, I think that that's beautiful. It is. I think it's also really beautiful to articulate how you had this check-in with your work. And through the work, you rediscovered the sense of purpose. The sense of, this is why I do this. And this is how, like, it empowers me. It brings me out of a state and into another place. Mm -hmm. And... I think that's a really beautiful thing to recognize for all of us who are contemplating purpose-based life and work. Noticing those times in our in our day-to-day when we get a chance to activate that sense of, "Oh, that I'm doing I'm in the right place, at the right, yeah. you know, this, yeah. this is right. And this is really charging me up and getting into that euphoric state." And as your friend, I would say, you know, that's kind of maybe the next meditative practice for you is to become almost like the energy being the lightning bolt, or be able to kind of tune in to a room so you can feel in a meditation, not just as a facilitator, which is important, but also as a participant, yeah. how the, the energy is moving throughout the space. Yeah. And um, certainly as a participant in the meditations that you've led, and even in, in that one in Atlanta, I felt very tapped in and connected, mm. both with the room and with you as a facilitator. So you're very skilled mm. at, at you know at leading groups, and I, I really look up to you for that. And I think in in regards to um, really allowing this to be medicine for you, um, yeah, it's 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 something that that's there for you to access when, when yeah, you need it. Totally. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think you're right that that's that that's been a more recent part of my journey with the work. Yeah. Uh, in L.A., with the big choir in L.A., that was a lot more of the situation. I was able to, like, with, with that one, I felt like I was able to fully do that mm-hmm. compared to the other one that you were at, Where I was, in, uh, I was able to reach it through being in the experience of the meditation. Right. So, and this is, I think, really interesting when it comes to leadership, mm-hmm. and when we talk about leadership, and when we talk about love and leadership, is the power in, in being honest about our process as we step into our leadership. Yeah. And celebrating the full spectrum of experience and color that comes with being leaders, right. talking about this stuff, yeah. owning that when we're in front of groups, we're not always perfect totally, and giving permission for other leaders to understand that that's okay. That's how we learn. That's how we become, that's how we become human, you know, heart-based leaders. <laughs> right.
0: Right. And I also think there's a really important part where you don't like it, There's this kind of pendulum that can swing and you can get so into a moment where you lose yourself. Right. And, and, and you want to be able to stay in some, um, control's not necessarily so the word, but in some sense of self, um, self-control and power so that you can lead effectively. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to lose yourself into a moment and sometimes get into a space that's alienating for other people. Mm. Yeah. You know? Um, I've definitely let myself go there at times and, and noticed that. So
1: yeah, that's interesting. It's, I've experienced that too.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It's like, whoa, he's feeling it too much. <laughs> um, so, I, I, we're kind of coming towards the end of our conversation, but I really would love to hear just in general um, your thoughts on love as activism. Um, you know, you've spoken a lot about kind of personal process and the communal group work that you do. Do you have a sense of uh, if you were to give advice to someone or everyone that's listening here, let's say, you know, they're struggling with you know, various forms of challenge, darkness, hate, whatever it might be in their lives. How do you uh, encourage folks to be activists for love? How would you say, um, you know, beyond what we've talked about, are there other things that you can think of that that feel resonant to that, that expression? Yeah,
1: well, I'm, we touched on it really briefly, but I think it's worth getting into a little bit more, and I'd like to actually ask you a little bit about it. Sure. It's this concept of, When we're able to really love ourselves Mm -hmm. and remember and connect with love on an individual level, Mm -hmm. that creates a foundation for how we engage with others. Um, And to me, so much of of activism Mm -hmm. is about engaging with others. Mm -hmm. And what I like to look at as a starting point for activism is how are we taking care of ourselves and what are we doing for ourselves so when we show up to engage with others through the, through the work of activism, we are doing it with as much of ourselves, with as much self-awareness, heart, empathy, clarity, presence, power as possible. Mm-hmm. So to me, I can't, it's like it's hard to look at activism without looking at how we first start with ourselves. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's all about how are we um, embracing and building love within ourselves as individuals mm-hmm. before we step into the roles of the role of being love activists. Mm-hmm. This to me is the greatest challenge of all mm-hmm. is how we self-love. And is it yeah, and how and how we talk about this right. and how we explore this is something that there's so much uh, so much opportunity for. Mm-hmm. And perhaps an opportunity to either bring new language to the table or to just really reclaim the concepts of self-love as something tangible, real powerful mm-hmm. to move it out of what I often think of as sort of trite wellness language mm-hmm. It sounds light and, you know, something that you can't really, you know, sink your teeth into. Right. I think like the term self-love can often get, get pushed away for, for seeming, you know, all love and light and smiles. Right. Uh, but it's, it's, it's to me, it's the single most practice that we can bring into our lives is the pursuit of cultivating self-love. So it's, so, so it's like, how do we do more of that?
0: Yeah. I think about the metaphor that keeps coming to me is my cup overfloweth. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like, how do you get to a place where you are so filled up that you have plenty to give? And I think oftentimes you can think about it in the context of someone who's trying to teach you something. If they're coming from a place of wisdom and, and, and lived experience and authentic, um, authenticity, they can teach you so much more clearly than someone who's kind of faking it. Yeah. Right? Similarly, so yeah, with love, so if you're wanting to transmit and share love outwardly, you must first live it inwardly. Yeah. And... And getting, that's, that's the whole point of this exercise and these conversations, is to get to specific definitions and practices that we can do as individuals to live it inwardly mm-hmm. and share it outwardly, right? And so from where I sit, I see you practicing meditation, setting strict boundaries around how you interact with technology... Um, cultivating community and then starting to actually engage with community and that become a, a point of overflowing right? Mm-hmm. and being able to say hey let's get a group to bike together I'm feeling great, let's, let's have burgers together let's meditate and sit together and these are all ways for you to use your leadership experience and your love to gather others mm-hmm. um, but it requires a lot of work on a daily basis I'm sure to, to keep in that vibration and showing up for yourself.
1: It's really true and, and I think my greatest opportunity, and this has been the case for years and still is, my greatest opportunity with leadership, moving people, any form of activism, whatever words we want to use, my greatest opportunity is, is, um, is, is staying connected to and remembering my, this essence of love. It's the thing that I fall away from most regularly and probably most easily mm-hmm. I'm talking about love for myself yeah. and it's just very hard to show up in the ways that we want to show up as leaders as activists as uh, partners lovers, mm-hmm. husbands, wives, friends whatever um, mm-hmm. when, we're not when we're not cultivating self love, for me the opportunities are about figuring out how to cultivate it regularly I've created great boundaries and tools to have a clear channel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there's, there, are, there are steps further that I think are required mm-hmm. to very consciously love ourselves.
0: You mentioned nature, and I, I really relate to that. I think just building appreciations for the natural beauty around us at all times. Just coming into New York, the trees are so different. I was just in L.A. and San Jose. and you know, We don't have these trees. Yeah. And just to be able to watch the breeze move the leaves and the trees, to me it was like, wow, that's beautiful. You know, and, and, and the nature speaks to us if we choose to listen.
1: That is so true. I think, I think nature is such a natural way to tap into the essence of love. I know for me, um, journaling, writing, specifically yeah. around this topic, is really helpful. Wow. My tendency, and I hear this all, all the time from my students, we have so many of us have a tendency to be tough on ourselves i think a lot of it has to do with cultural conditioning Mm -hmm. so how do we equip ourselves with the practices and the the tools to return to love so for me um right i know we've kind of touched on this earlier but just getting a little bit more specific Journaling about it and having specific moments where I check in and remind myself what I love about myself mm-hmm. Are such meaningful tools to bring me back to that place of remembering mm-hmm. and then I can bring with me As that cup is fuller into my work as a leader or someone who identifies as an activist can bring that work into their activism mm-hmm. um, More love which I believe will ultimately become more effective got to fill it up in ourselves
0: first, right? You use the word remembering and you've said it throughout this conversation. I really appreciate you saying it, but it hasn't really sunk in until the last couple times you said it. And I'm really trying to grasp what you think it is that is the morsel of memory that you're tapping into. What do you think you're working to remember? Is it a universal remembering that we all have access to, like nature? Or is it your experience of being loved as a child in your family, right? Yeah. Is it? You know, because I think some people grow up maybe in households that don't feel like they're loving, right, or in environments that maybe don't have much nature, don't have access to, you know, places that feel like love.
1: Totally. I I do believe that we're all we are all born inherently as love, mm-hmm. with 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 a deep and, and pure connection to it, mm-hmm. and um, as we move through our lives, we start to have experiences that can take us from it. Yeah. And that when we have those moments where we just fully feel into love, mm-hmm. that special moment where you're just like, you just know everything's going to be okay. Um, yeah. Um, and, and from that place, when we're connected and, and in that place of love, mm-hmm. so much feels clear um, why we're on this earth, why we um, make decisions and show up in relationships in the way that we do, the work that we do. The way that we respond to challenges, like so much shifts when we're connected to love there's just this magic in that place. And then whatever happens in our lives as a result of how we live our lives, we move away from it. I think it's natural to disconnect from it. Mm -hmm. We forget what it feels like, right? We forget what it's like to be in that place. So, mm-hmm. then our negativity biases take hold. Negativity biases take hold. Mm-hmm. You know, our cultural conditioning starts to take over. All the things that um, we are tough on ourselves about or that we, that we may uh, find as means to create suffering for in our lives, they start to take hold. Mm-hmm. So, to me, the process is about returning to that place of, of, of love. Mm-hmm. It's, it's remembering that place and that essence, that life force, because we're born with it. It exists within all of us, mm-hmm. but the journey is about returning to it, in my opinion. And I think the more we go through this process of remembering, forgetting, remembering, forgetting, remembering, forgetting, the more we're really dedicated to the process. Understanding that forgetting is a really important piece to establishing remembering. Mm-hmm. The more that we dedicate ourselves to it, the more we start to stay in it. Mm-hmm. The more that we stay with remembering in love, in that place of love for a longer period of time, right. the forgetting happens less frequently. Right. And that it's really important to experience both sides of it. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. And training ourselves to, to really cultivate that sense of remembering in a more regular way. That's right. That's right. And, and stay in that energy. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. Wow. Well, um... Got a couple minutes left. I want to make sure we get to you know the most important question uh, at the end of the, at the end of every interview. But is there? Do you have any last words that you'd like to share with this audience about love and, and expression of that and Medi Club or Big Quiet and the work that you've done and just that. All all I would say is that, and, and this is what I love about
1: this this podcast, is that the opportunity is now. For us to reclaim the word love, yes, because it's a word that pushes so many people away, because it's soft, because it can feel soft or mushy or romantic right. or you know not masculine. And, right. Uh, you know, I've 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 grown to see that so much of my masculine power is is um, uh, accentuated and accelerated when I come from a place of love. I'm so much more powerful as a man when I'm coming from a place of love. And the opportunity for everyone listening, and for us, like you're doing, is to reclaim the word love, and to own it, mm-hmm. and to not feel like it's this you know soft word that's gonna turn people off. That's you know too woo woo. Let's start to redefine it together as a culture, mm-hmm. because fuck, it seems so clear. We need more
0: of it than ever before. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And, and I, I, as you know, I wholeheartedly agree. And it's our opportunity right now to take love and to use it and use it in action and be activists and be extremists and get out there and and really activate what we think love needs to be in our lives and in ourselves and then with others. So where is the best place for us to find you? You can find me on
1: Instagram at Jesse Israel. Not after 10 p.m. But You can find me there (laughs) after 10 p.m. You probably won't hear from me. And my website, jesseisrael.com. And then my business, The Big Quiet, where we do mass meditations throughout the nation and soon the world. Oh, you yeah. can learn about us on Instagram at the Big Quiet and our website, TheBigQuiet.com.
0: Amazing. Well, I'll post that in the comments below. Um, and I really love having this conversation. I was looking forward to it for weeks. So I'm so glad I got a chance to hang and rap about this. Uh, to take us out, what's your favorite love song? Oh,
1: my favorite love song. Oof, that was a good question. I am, and I've been a huge fan of Chet Baker's. Okay. Not Chet Faker. No. Chet Chet Baker. Baker. Yeah, the OG. Chet Baker, the OG, um, cool jazz, Southern California, 1950s trumpet, beautiful voice, Mm. and... um, you know, it's a little bit on the nose, but it's true. As long as I fall in love too easily,
2: <laughs>
1: it's
0: beautiful. Amazing. And that's what I'll put up on top. Thank you. That's, that's a great recommendation. I haven't had any Chet Baker yet, so <laughs> a lot of Stevie Wonder, but no Chet Baker. <laughs> cool. Well, Jesse Israel, thank you so much for being on Love Extremist Radio today. Uh, thank you all for listening in and being a part of this conversation. Uh, we'll post the links to Jesse's work uh, in the comments below. And please rate and share and do all the things that you love to do with your favorite podcasts like this one. I uh, really appreciate you being a part of this. And let's redefine love and, and spread it out in our lives and in our communities. Have a great one. Take care.
2: I fall in love too easily. I fall in love too fast. I fall in love Too terribly hard For love to Ever last My heart should be Well schooled Cause I've been Fooled In the past But still I fall so easily I fall in love too fast Still, I